This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, July 13th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Lithia has started looking beyond its 2025 goals. Autonomous vehicles may find an easier regulatory on-ramp, and BMW aims for significant EV growth. Plus, a leading consultant says the risk of recession keeps receding despite persistent challenges in the economy and auto industry. But in the United States, I think we have been talking about recession for a long time, and it has been pushed more and more back. And keep in mind, even in the context of rising interest rates, the U.S. economy has been still growing and quite, you know, also adding employment. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Three years into Lithia Motors' audacious plan to reach $50 billion in revenue by the end of 2025, two things are clear. One is that Lithia remains confident it can reach its goal, which will require an industry-wide rebound to 17 million annual sales and a continued torrid pace of acquisitions, about one a week for the next couple of years. The second is that the company aims to grow even further, both geographically and by entering new kinds of businesses, from motorcycles to agricultural equipment, from fleet management to consumer insurance. Lithia CEO Brian DeBoer told Automotive News, when we start to talk beyond 2025, there are numerous other adjacencies that are in our strategies and that we've piloted and are still developing. You can read the whole story as well as a look at the company's partners group and my look at how DeBoer splits duties with Chief Operating Officer Chris Holshu in next week's print edition of Automotive News or online at autonews.com. Self-driving vehicles may soon have a new regulatory path for reaching the road. A top federal safety official outlined a new national program Wednesday for greenlighting the deployment of autonomous vehicles that do not have traditional controls like steering wheels or brake pedals. Companies could potentially deploy large numbers of self-driving vehicles under the proposal known as AV-STEP. Ann Carlson, the acting administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, said in a speech in San Francisco that NHTSA expects to publish a notice of proposed rulemaking on AV-STEP this fall. The advent of AV-STEP could be a big help to General Motors in particular the automaker submitted an exemption request for its cruise origin robo-taxi in February 2022 and has not yet received a decision from the Department of Transportation officials. NHTSA will provide GM with an answer soon, Carlson said Wednesday. Auto parts supplier Robert Bosch said it has started volume production of a fuel cell power module for U.S. electric truck startup Nikola Corp's upcoming hydrogen-powered Class 8 semi. The production launch is the latest step for Bosch, the world's largest auto supplier, in its big bet on hydrogen as an alternative power source for vehicles. The company said it expects hydrogen technology to generate about $5.5 billion in revenue by 2030, anticipating that by then, one in five new trucks that weigh more than six tons will be hydrogen powered. The module will debut on the Nikola Trey FCEV, which is expected to hit the U.S. market in the third quarter. Bosch is producing the systems at its Stuttgart-Führbach manufacturing complex in Germany 
and it will supply the plant with components such as fuel cell stacks and electric air compressors from other factories in Germany. BMW anticipates selling 50,000 electric vehicles in the U.S. this year, the brand's top sales executive told Automotive News. That nearly triples the 17,964 EVs the German automaker sold in the year's first six months. Sean Bugby, BMW of North America's Executive Vice President of Operations, highlighted the arrival of BMW's fourth battery model, the i5 sedan, in late 2023. His quote, we have an accelerated Q3 and Q4. Other luxury brands are also leaning into more EV production in the wake of Tesla's success. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, how realistic is Lithia's $50 billion plan? <laughs> it is a big target and they still have a long way to go. On the acquisition side, they seem to be on the right pace. Uh, you know, they, they make some deals now and then. They've got a lot in the pipeline. The other part of it is we need to see or they need to see the market return to its full strength of something more like 17 million new vehicle sales a year. Uh, we haven't been around that pace for a while. Perhaps uh, it looks like with chip supply getting back to normal and maybe once we get past these uh, labor talks this fall, there's a decent chance that 24 and 25 will start to look more like a 16, 17 million type of market. Uh, but that kind of remains to be seen. The big thing, though, is that they are on this growth trajectory, and it looks like it's going to keep growing. They're already number one in the country already and looking to grow far beyond where they are now. Gotcha. Coming up, a senior partner at McKinsey takes a look at the industry's current state and the challenges ahead in electrification and autonomy. That's next on Daily Drive. Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer every time? How often is the opportunity for a trade appraisal missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves, from appointment scheduling through final confirmation in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit-producing activities. It's a win-win for CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service lane, GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today, visit GoMoto.com. That's G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Few consulting firms have the level of insight into the inner workings of automakers, suppliers, and dealers that McKinsey & Company enjoys. It means the company has to be careful about what it says, but its words carry significant weight. Hans-Werner Koss co-founded McKinsey's automotive and assembly practice in the Americas and the Detroit office, and now helps lead the firm's global work in advanced industries. I spoke with him yesterday here at Crane Communications headquarters in Detroit, Here's our conversation. Hans Vernikas, welcome to Daily Drive. Thank you, Jamie. Great to be with you. So let's start with the general sense of the, the world that the automakers and the auto industry is living in. What is McKinsey's view of the economy? Are we heading into a recession? Are we avoiding recession? Are we just scuffling along? Yeah. 
So I, I think, Jamie, you're reading the same publication analysis as I do, but I would say, obviously, you need, on the one hand, a different view by region. But in the United States, I think we have been talking about recession for a long time, and it has been pushed more and more back. And keep in mind, even in the context of rising interest rates, the U.S. economy has been still growing and quite, you know, also adding employment. So all that points to, I would say, worst case, a soft and short recession, my view, or best case, a never happening recession or eternally postponed. <laughs> eternally postponed, exactly. One of the big threats that we see in the medium term, near term, is labor disruption. You know, the UAW and Unifor are heading into talks with the Detroit Three. Uh, a lot of unrest in the labor markets in North America. How do you ha all have a point of view on that and what the risk is and what maybe the broader impact might be? Well, my personal point of view is we are certainly operating already for the last two to two and a half years in a market with labor shortage. And, and it differs by region, it differs by skill category. However, I, I feel confident that there is still a big portion in the labor force who are not participating yet in the labor market. And you can read the same economical analysis and statistics. So I, I do think there is a little bit what I would call a hidden latent potential. Now, how do you reactivate that? And that is a combination. On the one hand, it is not only about monetary offerings, which means wages, compensation. I, I do think that companies, and that's the broader question of talent attraction, talent development, they need to have a proposition why companies can really make a case to have skilled labor, and that comes across in both blue color, white color, even though I think I personally do not like that distinction anymore because there's a lot of skilled critical labor in so-called blue color mm -hmm. uh, segment. They need to make a proposition why companies can really attract and re-attract uh, people who are not yet participating. And frankly, also to retain the ones who are with them today. So that talent value proposition is much, much more important. And that has to do with skill development. It has to do with company culture. It has to do also with a productive, collaborative work environment. So elements beyond monetary. But in the salaried world, when you're talking about the fight for programming talent or design talent, marketing, you know, then it's very dynamic. It's a lot stickier with these four-year, three-year labor contracts and the fact the way they are organized. The jobs are attractive, but it's how do you compel them to come back, sign up for four more years? Yeah. I think in my view, different parties engaging, obviously, in negotiations for the next three years, I think personally, there is more flexibility required. On the one hand, you can always make a case that a three-year contract is planning predictability. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, economic environments, but also tenant environments, they are changing. How do you really make sure you get and can retain the best talent. I personally would advocate for more collaborative, joint objective development, and frankly, for more flexibility. What's the state of the supply chain at this point? They've been through so much, so many challenges during COVID with production low and inconsistent. Now we're starting to see things pick back up. Are suppliers getting healthy? Or are they getting healthy fast enough? I would say two answers to that question. Point one is sheer supply chain visibility. You do need to know what your capacity and demonstrated capacity is to produce component XYZ, whether you're a tier one, tier two, tier three supplier. True, not only for automotive, but especially for automotive. I do think 
that visibility in the tiered supply chain has improved, also from an OEM perspective. And they are both technological means invested, digital transparency, but frankly, it comes down to data and information sharing in a transparent way, mutually collaborative with enough lead time, which means you do not get a call on a Friday afternoon for the production schedule for the first shift on Monday morning. The second thing is on supply chain resilience from a financial standpoint. When you look at the hard data, and we have looked at it, and we do look at it on a quarterly basis, suppliers still have been squeezed for a dot, dot of different reasons. They have been facing immediately inflationary headwinds, including from tier two, tier three, raw materials, but also other elements in the cost equation, including labor shortages, energy cost. And on the other hand, OEMs over the last two and a half, three years, they, they had the leverage also, quote unquote, on pricing right and getting the right product mix into the product lines and into the dealerships and could increase transaction prices substantially. So ultimately, I think there needs to be some balance because we, we do need a healthy supply base to also invest in innovations. Yeah, in a little longer term, it's, it's interesting. During the COVID crisis, uh, we heard a lot of people second-guessing just-in-time and lean manufacturing as, oh, you need more cushion, you need more buffer. And that, yet coming out of it, I'm hearing executives talk about being even more lean because we have more transparency, more insight, more built-in, you know, nimbleness uh, to, to adapt. Where do you think it's going? On the one hand, there's nothing wrong with being more lean, but we should not become more lean at the expense and risk of other business metrics. So depending on the length of your supply chain, and we have seen a lot of onshoring regional manufacturing already in the last three years. It even started pre-COVID, honestly, not only in COVID or post-COVID, if I may say so. So it's very, very important to actually have that, again, that transparency and knowing which inventory levels and which buffers you need. And that is not only through transportation and the length of a supply chain, that is one input factor, but also difficulty and sophistication of manufacturing processes, yield of certain product manufacturing, so that you have a reasonable amount of buffer without becoming unlean and quote-unquote accumulating too much working capital. So there is that balance becoming more lean, but also understanding the, the risks in the supply chain and how do you buffer short-term and mid-term and long-term to it. And obviously, ideally, you have highly stable, high-yield manufacturing processes and control them because then you can take inventory the levels down, but not everything is predictable. Indeed, including EV penetration. As we look out toward 2030, 2035, how do you see EV adoption growing? And what are the, are there key levers like next generation solid state batteries or what, what are the, the key hurdles and how do you see that evolving? So I think on the one end, we all know it, it is affordability because even the average transaction price, even though there are lower price points of electric vehicles offered already, is still above 50 to 55K US. A little bit different in Europe, certainly lower in, in China. The charging network still is a challenge. We all know that. But it's not only the coverage of the charging network. It's the speed of the charging network and being able that you can charge with direct current and doing that with 200, 350 kilowatt charge. That is very critical. To charge fast, by the way, you need the right onboard charging system in the vehicle, which costs a little bit of money to design and integrate. So there are opportunities, obviously, or challenges we still need to address. But I do think that with 
different support mechanisms, including tax credits, different type of subsidies, we, we can start lowering the hurdles of, for the consumer financially. Point two, I still think we need better consumer education. And that is not only how an electric vehicle thrives. Yes, it is also about that and how much fun it can be in terms of the acceleration, even though you could argue sometimes safety education is also needed how to handle an electric vehicle. But it is also how an electric vehicle is used, because still more than 80-90% of the commutes are below the 50-mile, 75-90-mile threshold. So with a decent charging infrastructure, public infrastructure charging, supporting, subsidizing also private charging at your home, whether it's apartment buildings or individual home, there are, by the way, still opportunities where we could even go beyond what has been offered today. If we address that as a bundle in a more integrative manner, I think we can actually drive the adoption rate, at least the consideration rate, but also the purchase and adoption rate for, elect, uh, for end consumers. Did you say a number in there for 2030 expectation for U.S. market? or something I give like you that? a range because <laughs> even some of my colleagues within my own firm, uh, we have different point of views. But in 2030 United States, I think you can see anything between 20% up to maybe the low 30s, 30, 32% of new vehicles being electric. Obviously, that varies, but you do see significant offerings increasing. Mm -hmm. The question again, profitability for the OEM, profitability for the tier one, because ultimately you will continue to reinvest in an advanced product lineup for electric vehicles if you earn sufficient returns, mm -hmm. because your shareholders will request that from you, whether you're a privately healthy company, but in most cases, publicly held companies. So before I let you go, the one other big idea, the big technological revolution, self-driving cars, uh, I can remember meeting with you and your team uh, a lifetime or two ago when I still had a lot of questions and doubts. I still have a lot of questions and doubts, but it's certainly becoming a lot more real. How real is autonomy, robo-taxis, and personally owned automated vehicles? I think when we, you and I talked the first time about it, even we were much more optimistic, maybe a little bit too optimistic, but point one, the technology is maturing. Both the visualization, the visioning, sensing capability, but also the uh, compute and processing capability. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have technological limits. It's more how technology means can adopt multiple different use cases and different traffic patterns and different traffic situations. That is the critical piece. And there are still, including weather, rain, snow, et cetera, et cetera, fog, there are still questions to be solved so that we can go to L4. Because that's really autonomy, even though you as a consumer are still required or as an operator to take back if needed. Point two is, I do think that there are opportunities in well-defined application areas, experts call that geofenced areas, mm -hmm. defined routes, even in local traffic, city traffic, suburban traffic, and also when, frankly, there is a demand which is closer to public transportation demand, mm. where you can have autonomous shuttles on defined routes, which you can flexibly still adjust so that you have six or eight or 10 passengers in there, and you can also make the business equation work. And at the third point, even though we can always try it, and we will, and there are many AV manufacturers and operators doing that today, improve, quote unquote, the technological reliability from sensing, computing, processing, and actuating, which means operating the vehicle. It comes down to the question of trust, that you even today with L2 or L3 offerings, can your eyes take off 
the road or the wheel, even if you're on a defined driving pattern or the interstate, not every consumer does that or wants that. So the question of trust, also how you actually use an autonomous vehicle is very critical. And that comes down to also trust in the company and trust in the brand, which is offering an autonomous vehicle. Hans Werner Koss, Senior Partner in the Auto Practice at McKinsey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having the conversation with you, Jamie. Thank you. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Jack Walsworth, Pete Bigelow, John Irwin, and Irvash Kakaria for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on auto retail, regulatory changes, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a discussion about how auto loan delinquencies for two age groups are rising fast and fears it will get worse when student loan payments resume in October. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.